The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. So my argument would be that international law is at most secondary and probably tertiary as a response to the broader political, economic, and social forces. Uh, I've always believed that law reflects rather than creates. But at the same time, I think that law can, in particular discrete areas, promote social trust rather than undermine it. Uh, Or putting it differently, I think extravagant legal claims undermine social trust and moderate legal claims that are crowned with success do build social trust. I'm Jack Goldsmith and this is the Lawfare Podcast, February 10, 2023. International law has been under significant stress in the last decade as a result of global populism, the rise of China, the war in Ukraine, and the challenges of the pandemic climate change, and cybersecurity threats, among many others. To discuss why international law seems to be failing in important respects and what to do about it, I sat down with Paul Stephen, the John C. Jeffries Jr. Distinguished Professor of Law at the University of Virginia, to discuss his new book, The World Crisis and International Law, The Knowledge Economy and the Battle for the Future. Stephen and I discussed whether international law is truly failing, and if so, how, Stephen's claim that the accelerating pace of technological change induced by the knowledge economy best explains international law's unraveling, why the highest courts of important states are increasingly rejecting international law and the orders of international courts and tribunals, and Stephen's bottom-up prescriptions for these problems. It's the Lawfare Podcast, February 10, The World Crisis and International Law. Paul, your book is called The World Crisis and International Law, The Knowledge Economy and the Battle for the Future. It seems to me that it is kind of a summing up of your views on international law based on a a lifetime of thought and teaching and writing and participating in international law. It's a terrific book. I want to start with a sentence from the introduction where you say that this book seeks to save liberal internationalism from itself. Can you explain what that means and basically tell us the argument of the book? Sure, Jack. Uh, Liberal internationalism, as I understand it, is the view, A, that international law is an important component of international relations and that the international relations we try to construct in this world are based on a certain set of values about the maintenance of peace and the growth of economic prosperity to enable people to live better lives throughout the world. The problem that I think has infected liberal internationalism in the last 30 plus years is a belief that top-down international structures are the way to promote those values. Uh, A belief that in turn is based on what I've always thought was a mistake about the end of the Cold War, which I never saw as an American victory, but rather as a Soviet defeat. What I try to do is describe the rise of liberal internationalism, particularly its apotheosis in the 1990s and all the new international institutions were, that were created during that period. The challenges that it started to face uh, really from the dawn of the 21st century, and then a series of crises that I think have drawn the entire project into question. 
uh, from the rise of nationalist populism in the rich world to the rise of revisionist states in the uh, non-rich world, uh, starting with China, but by no means only China. The growing challenges that we see ourselves facing globally, uh, war, plague, I wrote this book during COVID times, uh, so that was very much on my mind. Uh, economic instability, uh, economic insecurity based in large part on the growth of tremendous inequality around the world and the destabilizing politics that that's producing in many parts of the world. Also, cyber has turned out to be an area of great disappointment to us. Uh, immigration is another problem. All these problems, I think, need some kind of collective action solution, but we're living in the world where uh, international trust is diminishing rather than growing, and, and law is increasingly producing disappointments rather than reassurance that uh, it is a useful tool for addressing some of these issues. So, Paul, I'm a little skeptical that there was ever this wonderful era of liberal internationalism, but could you tell me why I'm wrong and, and describe its tenets and what its promise was? Well, I agree with you, uh, Jack. Uh, what I'm describing are aspirations more than accomplishments. Uh, my take on the 90s is that uh, it seemed very clear to a lot of people that A, the United States and the West generally had triumphed in the Cold War, that this triumph was based on both our values and our uh, institutions, that many of those institutions were law-based, that they were economic institutions as much, uh, perhaps even more than rights-based institutions. And this was the model that we expected the rest of the world to adapt. And during the 90s, many parts of the world, Russia, China, India, South Africa, Brazil, all tried or at least tried to seem as if they were behaving like us. And we certainly have colleagues. I won't identify them by name. They're, they're friends, people I admire. But I, I think they really bought entirely into this conception and were shocked and dismayed when people stopped buying it when people started seeing breakdowns in the international law system itself. But so let me push it backwards a little bit. I mean, before, during the cold war and just correct me if you disagree, we wouldn't have said that liberal internationalism was flourishing because everything was done through the lens of the bipolar system. Is that right? Exactly right. And indeed, there was at least a period, uh, I think the 70s was a period when astute thinkers like Henry Kissinger believed the West was doomed. And uh, our mission, his mission was to delay our demise as long as possible. Uh, so what we went from was a bipolar system where people more or less got that the other side didn't th see things the same way to a belief that was much stronger in the West, in the United States, in Europe, Australia, Canada, than in the rest of the world, that there was a common set of values and a commitment to a common set of institutions which were thrown up during the 90s uh, or expanded. Yes, but that period, I see that period. So after the, you know, the fall of the Soviet Union, that happy, optimistic period in the 1990s when, as you just described it, it appeared as if China and Russia and others were kind of joining the Western international legal system, so to speak. But wasn't that also just a, I mean, can't one see that as just a byproduct of this brief period of American hegemony, this unipolar moment? I mean, was there ever really a period where, where, where liberal internationalism prevailed? And does, does answering that question even matter to your thesis? I'm not sure it matters to my thesis. Uh, I, I think it's important for me to assert and try to convince others that there were people, particularly in the West, who believe that to be true. People who have prominent voices uh, help to proselytize the system that was being built and are still around today. And uh, we have to understand why their convictions always were to some extent, unrealistic. And what we are seeing now in this century is not simply a misbehavior that will be corrected, but rather the working out of more fundamental dynamics that will make the world, I think, truly multipolar. 
Okay, so let's talk about where and how the liberal the liberal international system, such as it was, went wrong. Your first sentence in the book is, "We live in a dark time." It's quite a good good way to open the book. What what is the dark time, and how does it relate to liberal internationalism, and what is your diagnosis of that relationship? So the dark time is the combination of very serious challenges that we see as very disturbing. The uh, war, uh, I submitted the manuscript before Russia invaded Ukraine, but it was clearly about to happen. Taiwan, Iranian uh, acquisition of nuclear weapons, you know, these are just very concrete, classical strategic problems. Economic uncertainty, uh, the erosion of, of the institutions like the WTO and the investment system, the disillusionment with uh, what cyber was supposed to give us in terms of shiny new toys and grassroots democracy, the Arab Spring and the like, uh, turning up a cropper, migration becoming an ever more serious problem, uh, and and. I think the granddaddy of all problems, uh, climate change, and and uh, the the loss of confidence in international cooperation. Just as we're facing challenges like COVID, like future pandemics, uh, that will require a collective response. So I think it's the combination of the uh, loss of confidence and the threats that require cooperation that create the dark times. Uh, that that. Uh, superficially create the dark times because, as you know, the book argues there's a deeper causative uh, force uh, that I think is running this program. So let's talk about that. Are you talking about the knowledge economy? Exactly. Yeah. So let's talk about that. So one of the distinctive contributions of the book, so many of those problems are thought to be conventionally thought to be byproducts of so-called globalization. And you kind of reject that rubric and you want to lodge the causal factor. And correct me if I get this wrong. You want to say that the causal factor instead was something called the knowledge economy. So can you explain what the knowledge economy is, what explanations it's doing in the book and how it's different from globalization? Sure. Uh, So the knowledge economy is that part of the value creating process that draws principally on knowledge as a input in production, and that produces knowledge products. This has existed uh, uh, really throughout history. Brad DeLong's great new book, Slouching uh, Towards Utopia, is a narrative about uh, the rise of the knowledge economy from one perspective. What I think is important about the knowledge economy is that it is at the front end of a causative change, by its nature, it creates a demand for globalization and therefore globalization, that is to say, the increasing uh, freedom of movement of uh, good services, people and capital are, I think, a result of a technological process that makes these movements more valuable. Uh, there, there was certainly a, a great globalization era in the 19th century but uh, I, I see globalization as uh, a polit- set of political decisions by governments as to how well they will receive the international economy. And the payoff to participating in the international economy is dictated by the principal uh, factor of production, which uh, increasingly has been knowledge. Uh, so knowledge creates demand and globalization is a supply side response. And so why is understanding that perspective the key to understanding the unraveling? Because I, I think of globalization as a response, and therefore we look at the political choices that are made rather than trying to understand what are the forces that are driving this and considering the downside as well as the upside of these forces. Uh, the knowledge economy has done in wonderful things, not the least being Uh, lifting hundreds of millions of people out of extreme poverty uh, in in the less developed world, the South, as I call it. But it also has profound distributional effects. And I think, at least as importantly, social effects, that it really is an engine of social distrust because it divides the world in uh, people 
within countries as well as among countries into winners and losers. And what's worse, the terms of winning are seen as virtuous and therefore losers are too often seen as bad people. Can you give examples of that? Sure. When uh, we lived in the world where privilege was inherited, we saw that as unjust and tried to overturn it. When you live in a world where people's accomplishments are tied to some combination of their diligence and aptitudes, uh, their raw talent independent of their family background, their social structure, uh, we think that's a good thing. And so uh, people like you and I who live in elite academic institutions, you know, this is where uh, people with talent come to be recognized and are often launched into the world and uh, become important economic, political, social actors. It, uh, the old term developed uh, by Lord Young uh, back in the 1950s was the meritocracy. And this is in part a story about a meritocracy based on an economic system that rewards merit inordinately. And, and Young was a far, he was prescient in understanding the downside of meritocracy, the, the hubris of meritocrats and the marginalization of those who, uh, for whatever reason, are unable to benefit from this society. And I think we've seen, particularly in the last decade or so, an acceleration of the process of the marginalization uh, and and the uh, humiliation of people who don't benefit from a system that puts talent front and center. And so this is also an explanation of the rise of global populism. I mean, you haven't put it that way, but that's what you're saying. Yes, exactly. I, I think this is as economical an explanation of populism as one is likely to find. And it is, by the way, I think not just a rich world problem. As I say in the book, when I live in Shenzhen, as I used to do before COVID uh, every two years, that was a place where kids with great talent and promise who could expect wonderful things from their lives in China would be in line at the local stores with people who were throwing up buildings, who tended to be uh, country people who were uh, the equivalent of illegal aliens in our system. That's to say they lacked hookahs, they lacked uh, full civil rights to live where they were, but they were permitted as long as they stayed in line to work on particular jobs, construction being important. And these people would be cheek by jowl, but their lives were profoundly different, both in the present and in the future, and for their families. Uh, and we live in something like that today. I'm a big fan of the Case and Deaton work about deaths of despair that really give a geographic face to the losing side of America. I mean, here in Charlottesville, I live in a pocket of great wealth and opportunity. And on the other side of the Shenandoah Valley, we have profound drug disruption, you know, lots of meth labs, uh, and more recently, uh, opiates, deaths, disease, social dysfunction, which I, I think has something to do with the dynamics of the knowledge economy. One of the claims in the book is that international institutions that are supposed to manage some of these problems, and we're going to go deeper into them in a moment, but the primary international law-based institutions that are supposed to manage these problems are failing or have failed. So could you just give, what are the top two or three institutions you have in mind? Maybe, or list as many as you want, but just give us a handful. Sure. So uh, in the national security world, uh, we had this brief interval, and uh, I think you and I both think there was a lot of illusion about this, but between the Gulf War, the first Gulf War, and uh, the intervention in Libya, we could occasionally get the Security Council to sign off on uh, collaborative projects. Uh, and that's totally gone now. And, and the Russian invasion of Ukraine has simply drawn a line over that. Uh, then economically, uh, you know, the blowing up of the dispute resolution system in the WTO that was created in 1995, that's dead. Uh, we still have the uh, dispute resolution system that existed before 1995, uh, which is much softer and with bigger gaps in coverage. But the inspiration of the WTO is an example of a kind of world government that at least some people, including dear friends of ours and colleagues of ours, used to believe in. That's clearly gone. 
you know, the liberal internationalist disposition to immigration is it's great. You know, you're adding value and the costs to the losers in society are supposedly peripheral and easily compensated. What we are seeing uh, in uh, much of the world is a, a really hard fought politics based on immigration that's both a politics of resentment, but also to some extent compromising the knowledge economy, which depends on mobility of, of both talented people to find their highest and best use, and also people in the service economy to uh, support knowledge workers. Uh, you know, people who do construction, who do restaurants, who do cleaning, you know, the lower levels of the health service profession. And, and then, of course, people have to explain the Trump election and Brexit as examples of very vivid and dramatic uh, revolts against uh, particular uh, commitments to liberal internationalism. Okay, so I mean, I accept that those institutions aren't seemingly working as well as they once did. But let me just try to push you and clarify the claim about the disruptions in international law. And I'm going to put my Lou Hinken hat on for a second. You know, you focused on a handful of institutions. The book focuses on a handful of international law-based institutions, some very important ones. And the book is basically a critique of international law not working well. But isn't it true that the vast majority of international law, the, the less uh, sexy stuff, the stuff that you know leads to goods and services from around the world still getting around the world, that leads to communication systems working and airplanes working, uh, the SISG system, all the private international law systems. I mean, the list, I could go on and on, that those elements of international law that tend not to be you know, discussed as high politics, isn't that still working pretty well? Well, I think many of those elements, Jack, are facing challenges that they didn't face before. Okay. Uh, so it, it really turns on how you see the Delta. Uh, that's to say, uh, what's the direction we're heading in? Uh, so some of them are working fine. Some of them are facing serious challenges. And if we expect populist politics to uh, accelerate rather than be a fever that will recede, then it's easy to contemplate them coming under even greater challenges in the future. That's my concern. Yeah. Uh, I mean, my, my perspective is not uh, that we're all doomed, that all of this is inevitable, but I am trying to counsel against uh, hubris in the international sphere, against overpromising and a formula that uh, some of the people in Eastern Europe uh, articulated, very insightful people back in the 90s, which is legal utopianism leading to legal nihilism. My friend who articulated that was a Bulgarian, but I think we see that playing out now in the international sphere. We, we overreached, and now some people at least are willing to give up on the entire enterprise. I'm trying to rethink the enterprise, but not give up on it. But there were always critics of international law, uh, including one of the two people on this on this uh, dialogue. I mean, are, are the legal utopians are they still a dominant force? Or are they still taken seriously? Are they still an important influence? They're still around, Jack. I mean, uh, just to take a, a a concrete example on the minds of many, the uh, Ukrainian war. Uh, I, I heard uh, in a, a private Zoom group chat, a prominent uh, political figure. I won't describe which party or uh, uh, what role. This is U.S. figure? U.S. figure who articulated, on the one hand, there has to be a settlement, which strikes me as indeed inevitable, not just reasonable, but B, that settlement must include regime change and uh, war crime trials. Uh, I mean, that to me seems pretty utopian when you're talking about a nuclear power where uh, opposition to the regime just doesn't seem to me visible. Internally, that is, internal opposition. So, uh, you know, that kind of thinking is still around us. So, uh, you know, you and I were, I think, pretty much in lockstep in our criticisms of international law throughout yeah. this, this yeah. century. I just, I just didn't want to tag you with that. Yeah. 
Uh, well, no, I, I, I accept the, the label. Uh, I, I embrace my association with you. I just wish I was as smart and influential as you are. <laughs> uh, but the point, I think, is that you and I both believe that international law does some work. Uh, we've always been in the position of trying to roll back the claims and expectations of people. And, and uh, what my book is trying to do is to carry out that task with a little bit more economic base to it. I'm not saying that the economics are totally persuasive. I'm not an economist. It, it doesn't have the really deep uh, quantifiable research that, say, Brad DeLong's book has. But, you know, I, I think there is a good case to be made that there is a connection between uh, this form of production that has enhanced our lives so greatly and the dysfunction that threatens everything we've accomplished. So I want to move to your part three, you call, you call it battlegrounds. Yes. And I think these are, I mean, why, why is it called battlegrounds? Well, there are examples where international law projects are being deeply contested and where the pattern of the last 20 years has been more and more pushback. Yeah, exactly. So, and we've touched on these a little bit, but I want, I want to go a little bit deeper on each one. Sure. So if just, and the first one has a lot going on at chapter nine, international security, cyber disruption, and human rights. What's the battleground there? Well, we have touched on it. I, I think... The overall framework for international security understood broadly is not just kinetic force war, but uh, other things that are about having you know, decent, humane lives in the world. The last 20 years have been pretty disappointing. We, we have what I, I call the triple threat of a war in Ukraine, uh, the a possible military reconciliation of the Chinese-Taiwan conflict and the Iranian acquisition of nuclear weapons. And, and let me just pause on that point for a second. I mean, we went to war on the possibility, as it turned out, the slim possibility that Iraq would be supplying nuclear weapons to terrorist groups. Iran is a known supporter of terrorist activities. And once it is nuclear armed, as I think you know, is a near-term prospect. Uh, the tie to a real terrorist state, uh, which I think the evidence that Iraq was is pretty scant, that ought to be very disturbing to us. Then we uh, look at cyber and uh, all these potentials that the, uh, at least the uh, utopians, you were never in this camp. And indeed, you wrote convincingly uh, your book with Tim Wu is uh, just one example of, of some of the limitations on those aspirations. But what we've seen recently, I think, is the uses of cyber capabilities, A, aggressively for attacks, ransomware as one example, and, and uh, incapacitation of important parts of our uh, social and, and economic infrastructure, uh, surveillance. Uh, I mean, the gains that the Chinese are making in surveillance technology, the pushback of the Arab states against the Arab Spring are all examples of how, at least for now, it seems that the uh, surveillers are doing much better than the bottom-up uh, organization and resistance that people saw happening in the Arab Spring. Uh, and then disinformation as the third prong of the what I call the pollution of cyberspace, which I think technologically is just likely to get better rather than worse, better in the sense of more effective and therefore worse for us right. uh, with deep fakes, new technologies, long lines. So these are all things that we thought back in the 90s would make us freer and better that now seem to be going south. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads, generally, for most people, are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. 
In four weeks, the typical new user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. So let me ask you a question. I don't know if you have an answer. This is outside your book, but we were talking about, and you know so much about Russia. I've been surprised about how ineffective the Russians seem to be using cyber, offensive cyber, to their advantage in this conflict. I would have imagined it being used much more effectively. And it's not clear to me, first of all, I, I want to, I'm, I'm going to ask the whole question, but you answer it in parts. First thing is, do you agree with that? Are, are you surprised? And is it, and is it, has it been ineffective? Second is why? Is it because, as I suspect, uh, the United States public and private institutions are doing an extraordinary job of helping the Ukrainians uh, defend their computer systems and or that the Russians are less competent than we believed. Now, I don't know if you have answers to any of these questions and it wasn't in your book, but I am curious since you know so much about some of these issues. Well, the first thing, I am surprised. Uh, I've been surprised generally by how this war has gone. Uh, back in February of last year, I overestimated the Russian capabilities and underestimated the Ukrainian capabilities. Uh, you know, I've spent a lot of time in Ukraine, and, and it's a lovely country, lovely people, but the failure to uh, organize a competent political system uh, to build any social trust, I mean, I regarded Ukraine as a much more corrupt country than the terribly corrupt Russians. So the fact that the Ukrainians have held together and the Russians have been ineffective came as a surprise to me. So in a sense, I'm discredited and no one to listen to to anything I say, but uh, I am surprised true. that uh, Russian cyber capabilities have been uh, much less effective th than we think. And I can only guess, and I'm not even sure there are informed guesses. I mean, one guess might be that a country like Ukraine is less vulnerable to these kind of operations than one like, say, Estonia or the United States. They're just less online than us, possibly. One is that we've exaggerated uh, the Russian capabilities and, and that they're much better. This is a common story with Russia that their uh, ability to steal from the state and use state capabilities for private gain has always been better than what the state can do itself. Uh, so here it might mean that, you know, bandits can do ransomware, but the state actually isn't that good at projecting uh, cyber power for state interests. And then finally, uh, there has been a big uh, boost in defensive capabilities, uh, you know, starting, I think, with U.S. resources that have been uh, lent to the Ukrainians in particular. And perhaps there's also a mutually assured destruction dynamic behind this, that the U.S. capabilities and I think with respect to offensive capabilities, we are the world leaders. It's a deterrent to Russia from going after anyone but Ukraine. Those are my guesses. Makes sense. Better than anything I've heard. Um, okay, let's move on to trade and investment. This is something, this is really at the core of your expertise, of your many expertises, I guess. How has trade and investment become disrupted? You mentioned, you mentioned the fall of the WTO appellate system, which I think the United States is primarily responsible for. But, you know, the GATT system, Alan Sykes uh, has argued that the WTO appellate body didn't really add much to what the GATT was doing uh, without the appellate body and without judicialization. And I, mean, I don't know what's going on in, with the, in the trade and investment world and the extent to which international law is faltering there. So what's the story there? Sure. So I think the WTO is an example of uh, – I distinguish between the GATT system and the WTO. That's to say between yep. the institutions added in 1995 and the fundamentals that were in place. Uh, so I, I think the WTO additions have turned out to be much less successful than people uh, wanted. And the U.S. has pretty much unilaterally put the appellate body out of commission, and I think that's probably irreversible. The other thing the U.S. has done is sort of exploited moves that uh, other states have already made and doubled down through the use of the national security exception, the argument that any state can exempt itself from any GATT 
obligation uh, simply by declaring what it wants to do essential to its security interests. And, and I, I think that also is a fait accompli, although the GATT panels have fought back strongly, but without resources behind them. I think in the investment regime, what we're seeing is, first of all, I think the investment regime has always been overstated in terms of its influence, both by its proponents and its opponents. I mean, if you look at who actually uses it, it's middle scale companies and individual investors. It, it's not the great multinational companies. By great, I mean large, not that I approve of them. But what, what do you mean when you say you don't use this, they don't use the system? Uh, you look at who's actually uh, filing claims. I see. You mean tra- claims under investment treaties? Uh, yes, exactly. Okay. Uh, that th- They are really small to medium enterprises who are filing these claims. And the giant firms, uh, particularly in uh, petroleum and gas, which is the industry I may know the best because of the Russian experience, you don't see claims. Uh, I mean, uh, from Exxon, from BP, not in the investment tribunals. There's been some claims involving Venezuela and, and Ecuador. Uh, right. So those are exceptions. And what, what is the account for? Are, are you saying that these, the investment regime is not terribly useful to the big companies and why? Yeah, I think they have better tools to use. I mean, that what the investment regime does is give a small fry and access to a system, both of resolution and enforcement that uh, compensates for their lack of economic clout and political clout. And I think uh, for multinational firms with genuine uh, economic and political clout, they don't need the investment system. So I, I think its importance has been exaggerated. It does employ lawyers, and, and we love it for that. <laughs> yes. uh, it certainly put two of my kids through college, and, and I love it for that. But, uh, you know, the truth is, it's not that big a stake, and yet, uh, increasing number of states are pulling out of it. The uh, academic consensus has been largely critical. And uh, I, I think confidence in the system's endurance, not to mention the fact that uh, increasingly states are resisting paying the awards. Uh, so it's, an, it's relatively expensive in the sense of a case typically runs up bills of millions of dollars. And if you're not going to get a significant payout in terms of realized tribunal awards, the investment in obtaining those war awards is increasingly, I think, seen as unproductive. But is this unwinding a function of what we talked about at the beginning, or is it of the problems and consequences of the knowledge economy, or is it, and to what degree, or is it, is it a function of broader forces? Or was it never very robust? It sounds like you don't think it was ever very robust. Well, it was only robust in the sense that there was a uh, remarkable increase of tribunal access being created. Uh, So that in the 90s, if you counted treaties creating arbitration and claims uh, for arbitration, there was a practically exponential growth of the system. If you look at it, not in terms of institution being expanded, but the actual value of the stakes of the claims, uh, not so much. So it was symbolically the face of internationalism, and it seemed promising to liberal internationalists, uh, but it has not realized that promise, and there's a growing uh, both in the intellectual left, not only in the academy, but particularly the left in the academy and uh, populist states in the South that are turning against it. So I, I don't think it's as big a deal. I don't think it's even as big a deal as the dismantling of the WTO structure. Yeah. Uh, but it, I think it's evidence of uh, the uh, threats to the global economy. You know, I think going forward, things like onshoring, uh, if it's realized, will be much more serious threats to... Ex- explain what you mean by onshoring. Yeah, so by onshoring, I mean, this started under COVID, uh, but it's being extended to all sorts of supply chain production, uh, supply chains being very much products of the knowledge economy, because without the knowledge capabilities we have, we wouldn't be able to have this kind of worldwide distributed supply in production. Uh, and as we're moving production back onshore, that makes production much more expensive. 
it undercuts uh, uh, some of the uh, rising economies around the world, leading to perhaps greater instability. And the uh, WTO and investment systems haven't yet really had to deal with that. But if you see this as important going forward, uh, it undermines our ambitions for the global economy that we started the century with. And and it also might be an example of, I think, something you mentioned earlier, basically overpromising about these institutions and what they could accomplish. Exactly so. Yeah. So I was surprised about that about chapter 12, which is also under battlegrounds. And it's one of the most interesting in the book. It's called the treason of the clerks, judicial yep. revolts against international law. Explain that. Sure. So uh, what we're seeing, particularly in the West, uh, is increasing practice by national courts of rejecting international law constraints. The EU sticks out simply because the whole premise of the EU was uh, integration based on international law. The entire EU system is, after all, an international law treaty system. And uh, we're seeing significant pushback against EU hierarchy, powerful states like Germany, uh, which had been threatening since the 60s to invoke their basic constitutional norms to push back against the EU. But they only did it uh, about five years ago, six years ago, in uh, connection with the European responses to the global financial crisis and, and affronts the German concepts of fiscal probity too much lending uh, by the European Central Bank. You know, that's a big deal. I, I uh, talk about the Russian pushback just because it's so creative and outrageous. You know, the, the way they've turned around their, uh, uh, Russia was a state that like Germany, Italy, uh, at the end of the war, when uh, the Soviet Union ended Russia, at least formally through their constitution, bought into the idea of international law hierarchy. Uh, they even, made executed treaties free from constitutional supervision. So uh, instead, a treaty had to be reviewed for its constitutional consistency before going into effect because the country couldn't conceive of violating international law once the treaty was made. We go from that regime to just very upfront resistance uh, where the legislature commissions the Constitutional Court, which for many years was thought to be the great outpost of, of liberal internationalism in the Russian system. And now it is producing judgments that are you know, very aggressively pushing back on international claims. And, and, and indeed, to my ear, uh, written so unconvincingly that the message really is, we no longer are interested in legal argument. We are just interested in power. So to the extent we're seeing these exercises of power channeled through courts against the international order, that really is upsetting everything that people back in the 90s believed in. And this used to be thought of, at least in the United States, I think, as an American problem. And people in the United States, in the academy especially, would be very upset every time dualism reared its head in the Supreme Court and elsewhere, i.e. the primacy of domestic over international law. But you're pointing out that it's a much broader uh, phenomenon. And I'm just wondering how it's viewed in Europe compared to the United States, this, this idea of the revolt against international law. So my friends are just absolutely dismayed by this. By the European phenomenon. Exactly. Whether yeah. we're talking about British judges, my friends in the uh, British uh, judiciary are dismayed by uh, what's going on. Uh, they tend to bl blame the government rather than the courts, although there have been at least uh, a couple of judicial decisions that have uh, pushed back on uh, both Brussels and Strasbourg, the two international courts of Europe. My European friends are just in dismay over the national courts and still seem to articulate this as misbehavior by uh, short-sighted populace rather than a fundamental change in the system. Right, exactly. And, and the fact that it's happening across so many different kinds of Western states suggests that it is a change in the system. I mean, that's my argument. 
Yeah. You know, we'll have to see going forward. But I, I think if you look at the last 15 years, it's remarkable what's happened. You know, the United States is now just one of the actors. And indeed, I would argue, because we've been dealing with this issue for a longer time, you know, we have, I think, clearer legal guardrails uh, around our opposition. While it's still rather new and exploratory for the Europeans and others and the potential for it to be across the board. I mean, I do express some pessimism in the book for the sustainability of the EU structure itself. Right. So let's turn to solutions. And this is always the hard part. <laughs> and so in the beginning of the book, as I recall, you were a little apologetic, maybe that's not the right word, you can correct me, about the idea that what you're talking about here, these problems you're talking about relate to international law, but they're really problems of the global order beyond law and global disruption uh, and global political disruption and global social disruption. And it relates to and has an impact on international law. But one may ask, well, what could international law possibly do to address the many problems that you that you talk about in the book. But so before we get to particular proposals, I mean, why is international law even relevant here? Isn't isn't it hasn't it been shown to be ineffective? So my argument would be that international law is at most secondary and probably tertiary as a response to the broader political, economic, and social forces. Uh, I've always believed that law reflects rather than creates. But at the same time, I think that law can, in particular discrete areas, promote social trust rather than undermine it. Uh, Or putting it differently, I think extravagant legal claims undermine social trust and moderate legal claims that are crowned with success do build social trust incrementally. And I I do think social trust is sort of at the core of what I've been writing about. So I would agree with you completely that international law doesn't do a lot. I think it overstates it to say broadly and categorically it's been ineffective uh, in the sense it does some useful work. Oh, I agree with that. Yeah, I, mean, I, I, know I, I gave you examples earlier. Yeah, but yeah. Just, before we get to, I mean, I think of your proposals in the end as, I can't remember if you describe it this way, but bottom-up international law proposals as opposed to grand top-down international law proposals. Is that is that fair? Exactly. Okay. Can you, can you explain that and, and why that basic approach makes sense? There are many reasons why top-down projects uh, fail. Uh, Their ambition is almost never matched by capacity. There is an inherent bias in the people who propose them uh, because they are most likely uh, to be the beneficiaries, whether they're going to work in these new structures or just write about them or do research uh, supported by them. Uh, so I think we have a tendency uh, to oversell these projects, the 90s being a case history. And, and I think uh, the biggest problem I have with top-down projects is they make trial and error very costly. You know, it takes a lot of work to start up a big international project, and it's just as hard to tear them down. You know, look at the Marshall Plan, where once it succeeded, rather than say, okay, we won, we converted that into the OECD, which does some good work, but, you know, it's not the original purpose of the international organization. The bank and the fund, you know, basically it took 20 years before them to find anything to do, although they were thought in 1944 to be uh, at the heart of reconstruction after the war. So, uh, uh, and by contrast, I think bottom up is all about trial and error. Uh, you know, you have, uh, I, I, I focus on individual states that try to influence the behavior of other states by proposing things that are against the current grain. And uh, if they are successful proposals and are successful not only in that they achieve good results, but are seen by other relevant actors is not especially selfish or predatory, but actually useful contributions to cooperation. Uh, you know, the examples that I use in the book where this has worked in the past is uh, uh, the U.S. reconceptualization of prescriptive jurisdiction, you know, starting with competition law and then extending to anti-bribery law. 
where, you know, rather than having an international uh, Sherman Act and an international FTC, we instead have states taking initiatives and, and dealing with global enterprises that create local antitrust costs and, and more recently the anti-bribery regime. And, and we've shown a pathway for there to be uh, individual state leadership, but for opportunities to cooperate arise. Uh, and I, I point to areas uh, where we might see a similar pattern of development. And, and uh, you know, one uh, I've just written about on uh, lawfare is the cyber uh, area, where it seems to me that learning by doing led by a state like the United States that is a cyber power, but not an, a hegemon, uh, might lead to some cooperative outcomes that would benefit everyone, you know, with respect to ransomware, for example, with respect to the difference between espionage, which we like, and uh, attacks, which we don't like. And that seems to me, if we're going to come to any kind of order, it will be a, a learning by doing process bottom up, maybe when the system is sufficiently successful, we'll memorialize it in a legal structure, uh, the way the anti-bribery re regime was memorialized. But, but I, I, the argument is not that international law is where we start. It's just that it, whether we can do international law is an indication that our cooperative projects are working. So I think the anti-bribery story is a great one and it fits exactly what you're talking about. Could you, just in case readers don't fully know the story, just give a brief synopsis of how it started unilaterally, how it grew to be a global regime and why that's an example of leading by doing? Sure. So the United States went against, against the grain of the West when in uh, and and arguably against its own interests, at least in some respects. Well, certainly uh, the multinational enterprises uh, were not happy with exactly. Where we were That's going. what I meant. Uh, yeah. And uh, we created a regime. Uh, it started with the SEC and then was codified in a statute uh, that said essentially anyone who wants access to U.S. capital markets uh, has to be committed to anti-bribery commitments, which means not just punishing people who bribe, but install in large companies compliance systems and surveillance systems that decrease the risk of, of bribery of foreign government officials. Uh, and for a quarter of a century, the U.S. essentially did this on its own in a world where our uh, economic rivals, places like Germany, allowed tax deductibility of bribes, Japan. I think this was one of the accomplishments of the Clinton administration that they basically said to our, our colleagues in the rich world, we are going after your firms unless we create a cooperative structure where you will go after your companies and we will go after ours, but we retain the right to go after yours as well. And that in the 21st century has been the world. Uh, a handful of, of countries have joined us in a more or less vigorous anti-bribery regime, Britain and, and Germany being the two most prominent examples. But we now have a past and disproportionately go after non-U.S. companies. Uh, they still have to seek access to U.S. capital markets. And the more the United States has gone after foreign uh, companies, the more other states have decided we really need our own regime in place to hold the U.S. at bay because the U.S. has said, you know, we'll cooperate if you are uh, going after these companies as well. So it's, it's kind of a combination of leading by example, a little coercion, threats. There was a lot of, I think, for lack of a better phrase, moral pressure when these examples of corruption in Europe were on the front pages of the newspaper. It was an extraordinary combination of these things that led from a domestic regime and then a unilateral to a unilateral regime, which led to a form, very important form of global cooperation. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I think that the U.S. started this uh, not so much with economic interests, but more uh, uh, it was a response in the Cold War. It was an attempt to undermine the argument that the Western multinationals are inherently exploitative 
dominating uh, countries around the world and uh, steps had to be taken to rein them in for Cold War purposes, not economic purposes. As the world economy changed, the interest in avoiding uh, what I would consider the deadweight losses of bribery uh, became closer to the foreground and a combination of, of leading by example. You're right that the moral drum beats were heard from. Uh, we can argue about how significant organizations like Amnesty International were, but certainly they had a role in uh, reframing the problem. And and we have, you know, a, a remarkable regime today of, of, you know, significant, we haven't gotten rid of corruption, but we have certainly imposed a lot of pressure on the major internationals. My colleague Pierre uh, Verdier has written about this in the financial system. And again, it's a, you know, U.S. leading the way and holding international banks generally to certain norms that I think are beneficial for consumers. You know, no fraud, uh, don't lie which I think is good for the international financial system, but it's not international institutions that are doing it. It's, it's U.S. prosecutors. And it seems like for this strategy to work, it really does have to be done by powerful states starting off. You just alluded to the fact the United States can put pressure on global banks. Yep. The EU has leverage because it is such a huge market with such huge enforcement capabilities. So this type of you know, it is bottom up, but it's bottom up from powerful states or super states. Absolutely. Although when it's successful, and I think the competition regime is an example of this, you can lay off responsibility to other states if you are persistent enough and successful enough and convince other states that, you know, this is really good for everybody. It's not simply domination by one state for its selfish interests. I think that accurately describes where we are with competition law now. Although yep. there are conflicts, particularly over big data between the U.S. and Europe, that might blow all this up. So it, it's not, yep. you know, it's not utopia, but it's not bad. Yep. So, Paul, last question. The standard public international law course, just have that in mind uh, as it's traditionally taught. What does reading your book require to be changed in that course? How should we view the standard approach in the classroom, in mainstream academia to international law, differently after reading your book? So I think that the book, if it's successful, if it's persuasive, and most importantly of all, if it's not totally ignored, uh, which is always my greatest fear, will lead people to teach international law more like the way that people teach tax. Uh, that is to say, we never lose sight of who has something to gain, how they gain, and how institution affects the struggle over gains. I mean, it's, you know, second nature when you talk about tax, that it's the taxpayer versus the government, and you understand their competing interests, and you try to think how to balance those interests in a way that's socially beneficial. I think we can think about international law the same way. And I actually don't think it's that hard to think about international law the same way. But I would rather international law be that kind of course than a course that relies on some mixture of Rawls, Dworkin, and Immanuel Kant, which I think uh, too often describes the way the course is taught today when it's not taught straight out of uh, Marx and Habermas and Adorno. So I just want to point out for the readers who might not know that you are, in fact, also a tax professor. And indeed, my first real international investment as a lawyer was in Treasury, where we tried to design uh, the tax systems of Central and Eastern Europe, and where we played an important role in creating the Russian tax code, which later became a tool for pummeling the West. I think that's a great place to end, Paul. Thank you so much. Thank you, Jack. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. You can get ad-free versions of this and other Lawfare Podcasts by becoming a Lawfare material supporter at patreon.com backslash lawfare. You'll also get access to special events and other content available only to our supporters. The podcast is edited by Jen Patia Howell, and your audio engineer this episode was Kara Schillen of Goat Rodeo. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan. As always, thank you for listening.
Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.